We ask, Father, that you'd help us as we now continue on in this text and that we would discern its significance to us, its meaning. By the Spirit of God, we pray that you would continue to teach and instruct us and strengthen us as your people. And for those who know not Christ, who face your justice in the future, we pray that they would turn to that salvation that is provided. Guide us, Lord, at this time. We come to you in need, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. What is justice? How do you determine that justice has been served, or perhaps that there's been a miscarriage of justice? Justice lies at the heart of the political battles that so divide our nation today. Virtually everyone cares about justice. We just vehemently, sometimes even violently, disagree on what that means in an array of societal and institutional applications. Justice is, of course, directly tied to one's view of what is right and what is wrong. So people who differ on what is right and wrong will always disagree on matters of justice at some level. As followers of Christ, we understand that justice and morality are not matters of political preference. We know that our sense of right and wrong, we know that our understanding and even definition of justice must be calibrated by the truth that God reveals to his people. He speaks the truth that we then receive that we may understand what justice truly is. And this conviction renders us as a community of exiles in this world as we view morality and justice in distinctly biblical, God-centered terms. So upholding God's definition of justice based on God's moral law, that is a vital aspect of our loyalty to Christ in this world. And so in this realm, among others, we must consciously heed the counsel of James 4 and verse 4, for instance, you adulterous people, as he rebukes them, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this all leads us back to 1 Kings chapter 20 and the battles between Israel's king Ahab and Syria's king Ben-Hadad. We've refreshed our memory of the narrative with the reading of verses 1 through 30. Let me just pause to draw out three ideas from those first 30 verses. No explanation, no, I'm sorry, no expectation, no chance, and no doubt. No expectation. God's judgment of Ahab is all that one could expect from the reading of 1 Kings. It's the only thing that anyone would expect. This victory over Syria is entirely unpredictable. Secondly, no chance. As we've seen in verses 4 and verse 27, Ahab himself knew that he stood absolutely no chance to defeat this king. And no doubt, God twice utterly decimates the Syrian army. This last defeat... 127,000 soldiers perish. 
including 27,000 killed by the collapse of a city wall at Aphek. So coming from the north, Damascus, Ben-Hadad, and from the south, Samaria, King Ahab, meet the plain of Aphek, where there is a small city there, that walled city, and part of that wall collapses upon these Syrian troops, these Aramean people. So God has proven with unimpeachable evidence that he is sovereign Lord over every square inch, as we noted last week. And once again, Ahab witnesses this fact. He has seen three and a half years of drought ended by the prayer of Elijah. He has seen the fireball come down and decimate the sacrifice, the rocks, the water, the dirt of Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel. And by the word of the prophets, Ahab has, can now directly connect these two victories over the Syrian army to the work of God. God is there. He is Lord of all. And Ahab continues to witness this fact. Showered with these evidences of who God is of his presence in this world, contending for the glory of his name through his people. Ahab sees it again and again. How will he respond? What does right and wrong look like now for the king? Will he view justice as a servant of God or as a friend of the world? These questions loom and will continue on as we move into chapter 21. We left Ahab last week, and we've just noted him here again this week, cowering in a closet in the wrecked fortress of Aphek, fearing that Ahab will find him and do great harm to him. He cowers there. We see, first of all, that Ahab receives Ben-Hadad as a friend unexpectedly. Verse 30, as we continue there, Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Ben-Hadad's world had been turned upside down, hadn't it? As we see him boasting there in the first part of the chapter, and now cowering here. He led to the field of battle well over 100,000 soldiers. Think of the chariots and the horses and the armor and the weaponry. And he is out there at the front. Someone has said there's nothing closer to a god on earth than a general before his army. And that is this man, ready to destroy, ready to express his superiority over Israel. He has besieged Samaria, the capital city, making those arrogant demands of plunder. And now he is hiding for his life in the equivalent of a closet. The Hebrew literally is a room in a room, whatever that means. But probably something like a room without windows inside a room, a closet. That's where he's cowering. Verse 31. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. How the tables have turned. The sackcloth and the ropes on the heads are signs of humiliation and signs of full surrender. Captured kings were commonly roped by the neck to the conquering king's chariot. And these guys they say, we'll, we'll put the ropes on ourselves. We'll use our own material. They come in utter humiliation before Ahab. 
Your majesty, King Ahab, son of Omri, we are utterly at your mercy. And they did this. They tied sackcloth around their waist. Verse 32. They put ropes on their heads. They went to the king of Israel. They said to him, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. We'll continue to unpack the significance of Ahab's response here as we move forward. But it constitutes an utter disregard of God and his purposes. It doesn't hit us that way right away. It kind of says like, oh great, he survived the battle. Nice, he's my brother. But what that is, is a direct rebellion against God. Oh good, he's alive. Nice to know. So my warriors did not kill him. How fortunate. He is my brother. As the idiom has it in slight alteration of Shakespeare's Henry IV, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Perhaps there's some of that going on here, that he's a king like me. There's a bond here between us. I will receive him as one who understands we in our small group of kings. Be that as it may, it was likely also an astute political move on Ahab's part. Because Syria to the north, Israel to the south, have to the north of both of them the empire of Assyria and Shalmaneser the emperor, who is pressuring Israel. And so with Syria being healthy, that's a buffer zone for Israel as they face the Assyrian threat, the aggression from the north and from the east. But be that as it may, the more healthy the Syrian empire, yes, the better it is for Israel. But all of that aside, it is most important for us to see that this is a direct expression of friendship with the world. And that is how God sees it. He is my brother He is my partner. He's one with whom I will link up. And in a manner of speaking, the envoys of Ben-Hadad then catch that very point right out of his mouth, so to speak. Verse 33. Now the men were watching for a sign, for an omen, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. That's the ticket. That's the word. Ben-Hadad's negotiations are astute. These negotiators are astute politicians. And they pounce on that word brother. How gracious of King Ahab. How kind and welcoming. Isn't this a godly response on his part? Well, Ahab continues. Verse 33 at the middle of the verse. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself, trading posts, in Damascus, the capital city of Syria, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. He is my friend with whom I will covenant. Covenant. 
Ahab may well have believed in this moment that he was acting in Israel's best interest. He was acting to protect Israel from Assyria. The problem is, is that he acts as if God is irrelevant. God knows that this same Ben-Hadad will return in three years and once again attack Israel. God knows Ahab's generosity will backfire and will cost the lives of many Israelites. But most importantly, God has an agenda here. And Ahab has utterly no interest to understand what that agenda is, let alone to execute it. That is not his interest. And so here is where the scene ends, with Ahab feeling really, really good about himself, full of himself. He has played the diplomat. He has made a friend of an enemy. How many people can do that? He has upheld the buffer against Shalmaneser's menacing aggression. Certainly, the media will pick up on this and speak of him as this great diplomatic leader. He's opened up economic ties to Damascus. This great trading post. Money will now continue to flow in that has not flowed in before. They were right on the cusp of losing everything that they had, and now they have trading posts, bazaars in Damascus itself. He gloats in his military victory and reputation. This is a glorious day for Ahab in every way imaginable, save one. Ahab has chosen to disregard the sovereign lordship of Yahweh. He has administered his justice on his terms. He has operated on what he thinks is right, entirely ignoring the God who is Lord over every square inch. Simply said, he receives Ben-Hadad as a friend, But what he has done is made covenant with the world itself. A prophet then, in verse 35, at this change of scene, condemns Ahab's infidelity to the Lord. Verse 35, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow, At the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, That is the prophet saying to this man who's refused to strike him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down, and as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. When you read that, don't you kind of go like, whoa, this guy got lost. What on earth does that have to do with anything whatsoever? And how weird is this scene. Two observations help us initially. Number one, when receiving revelation from God, the prophets of Israel spoke for God. So God is responding here to Ahab's response to Ben-Hadad. We've got to wait a while and let it work its way out, but that's what is taking place here. Secondly, it's important for us to note that the prophets of the Old Covenant often communicated God's truth through object lessons or kind of acted parables. This scene strikes us as really weird. 
it would have struck the Israelites as really weird. But they had a category for this kind of thing. And they often mocked the prophets for these weird play acts, that, these object lessons. It's so strange and odd, but it got everybody's attention. And that's the point. So they had a category for this. It's not going to strike them quite as strange as it does us in the text. But what on earth is going on here? Is the Bible teaching us that if a guy ever asks you to strike him, make sure you lay him out? That's clearly not the point. But let's get more serious. Are we to conclude that God is an unrighteous judge? That he overcorrects? Why kill this guy for doing the right thing? I mean, if somebody says, punch me, hit me hard, injure me, you say, yeah, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And God kills the man. It'd be better that our text in translation did not say, please. please strike me, please. We take that as, if you please, if, if, if that's okay with you. But it's really probably better translated now. Strike me now. Hit me now. What is crucial in all of this is that it is at the command of the Lord, verse 35. So this man knew that the God of Israel had commanded him to strike this prophet. He found God's word distasteful, so decided that he could choose to disobey God. Mercifully, God generally spares us the lion. But we do the same thing, don't we? We know what God's word says, but it's distasteful. In this situation, I don't think it will work, and so I decide that I'm not going to listen to what God says. So in this man's response, we see the reflection of our own sin. We too hear that word and disregard it. And for those who have no substitute to pay the penalty of that sin, we too will stand before God of judgment. But ultimately it will not be before a lion. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, facing no lion that can kill the body, but the lion of the tribe of Judah who can kill both soul and body in hell. This looks odd to us. This looks severe to us. This is not severe in a biblical worldview. This is the reality of disobeying the voice of God. It's just that this man got hit earlier than others. And in a strange way, certainly. The story of the lion-eaten man is a lot closer to some of us than meets the eye. Speaking as God's representative, the prophet delivers this judgment. You have failed to strike me at God's command. God will, God will now command a lion to strike you, and the lion will listen. Death by lion was an enacted parable of what was basically going to happen to Ahab for committing the same sin as this man had committed. This is where God is taking the, so to speak, parable. Verse 37. 
Then he found another man and said, Strike me now. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. That is, that prisoner got away. I lost him. It was my life for his, but I lost him. Now, none of this actually happened, of course. But the prophet is not lying. He is using a parable, and he'll make that clear to the king in due course. He's not going to let him go off thinking that this was true. You remember the prophet Nathan used this very tactic, didn't he? Remember the, the poor man with the one lamb that he loved that was taken? But that never happened. But as David was drawn into that parable, he judged himself, and that's precisely what's going to happen here. Just like guilty King David, guilty King Ahab takes the bait, verse 40. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided. There's only one just outcome here, soldier. What what Ahab failed to see was that in judging the case, he had judged himself. Much as David did before the prophet Nathan. There was a man in your keeping. You let him go. Your life for his is the judgment. Verse 41. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. It's likely that without the head bandage, the king would have just charioted right past the guy because he knows him. He knows he's a prophet. And he has no time for a prophet of God, and so he probably would have just gone right past him. I don't think that the bandage is necessarily connected to the injury. Perhaps it is in some way, but it's a way in which the prophet can get the king's attention so that the word of the Lord can be duly delivered. Kind of like people today serving papers to someone who doesn't want to receive that service. And if you've talked to somebody who does that as a, as a job, they find unique ways to trick people into taking that uh, paper from them to show up in court or the like. And it's a bit of what he's doing here. He finds a way to get the king to hear the word of the Lord, and that's what follows here in verse 42. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord. Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. On God's terms, Ahab's treatment of Ben-Hadad was a miscarriage of justice. As lord of every square inch, Ben-Hadad was God's prisoner first. Ahab acted as if Ben-Hadad was his prisoner first to do with what he chose. 
But in his dealings with the Syrian king, Ahab did not pray to God for wisdom. He did not seek counsel from a prophet of God. How should I deal with this king? And Ahab thought nothing of Israel's history or of God's redemptive work. Justice on God's terms, justice in keeping with Israel's story, is reflected in the phrase translated here, the man whom I had devoted to destruction. This reflects the Hebrew word harem. And it was used of God's declaration of the Canaanites, dedicating them to total destruction when Israel took the promised land. So the word could be used positively of an object or person irrevocably surrendered to the service of God and thus banned from common use and from all misuse. It could be used that way. But more often this word harem was used in reference to people whom God had sentenced to death in the context of holy war. We see, for instance, in Deuteronomy, this idea and what you have here in the highlighted text is that word harem. But in the cities of these people, peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Now this could open up a whole nother discussion of this holy war. But if we do not perceive that God is sovereign over every breath that we take in, then we're going to really struggle with his instructions to Israel here. But when we understand that he is Lord of heaven and earth and that he will judge every soul in the end, we know that he has absolutely every right to do this. And we also remember that he took 400 plus years 400 years from the time that he made this promise to Abraham that this was his land for the wickedness of these Canaanites to come to full corruption, to metastasize so far that the only thing left was for the patient to be put down. God is removing the wickedness of this land to start over, and that is his sovereign right. What Ahab is doing is being completely clueless to this whole context. Had Ahab cared about God's agenda, he would have considered the terms of engagement under the auspices of God's holy war. Lightheart captures the spirit of this narrative, the spirit of this narrative here when he says this. It just helps us kind of understand sort of the spirit of it. He says, Can one imagine Moses combating Pharaoh through nine plagues and then calling it all off and moving back into Pharaoh's palace? Can anyone imagine David and Goliath fighting to a draw and then going off to share a pint? We might as well imagine Jesus dining with the devil after his temptations in the wilderness. Now, lacking context, reading this through our world's sense of justice, we lose this sense. It was Ahab's sworn duty before God under the covenant to take this king out. And he's befriending him. Ahab imagined that he had a better grip on justice than God. 
This was God's fight, not Ahab's. Ahab was positioned by God to destroy this man, not to covenant with him. And so, declares the prophet, Ahab will die and his people will suffer God's wrath in this one's place. And Ahab had all sorts of evidence that God had all the power to deliver on this threat. There was the drought, there was Mount Carmel, there were the two victories that could be explained no other way but by God's intervention. And now God is saying that he is going to bring this down on Ahab's head and Ahab knows God will deliver which is why we read verse 43. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen as he came to Samaria. Ahab found God unfair, exasperating, cruel, and he pouted and fumed all the way home. In his case, this was a playing out of Proverbs 21 and verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Everything that Ahab did, he saw as right. He had delivered justice, but the Lord weighs the heart. What is right in our eyes is not always right in the eyes of the Lord, who weighs the heart. So Ahab weighed his own heart in the balances and found himself great and glorious. God weighed Ahab's heart and found it corrupt and faithless. Ahab was, in a phrase, a friend of the world. And as such, he was no defender of God's holy justice. As such, he hid the light of the glory of God in that time, in that moment. Now, speaking of that, we obviously live in a very different world, do we not? We gather as God's people under the gracious directives of a different and superior covenant. That covenant was initiated by the substitutionary death and the vicarious resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get that. Those who critique the Old Testament, for instance, and say that you as Christians perpetuate this view of God, don't understand that. They don't recognize the relationship between the covenants. As New Covenant believers, we are not called to carry out military campaigns against God's enemies. We are not called to exact God's justice in this world with lethal force. As God's New Covenant people, we are called to die for God's enemies, not to kill them. We're under another covenant. And short of that, dying for them, we are called to occupy their prisons, to joyfully receive their ridicule, to suffer ostracism from them as we represent Christ to the nations. And as we are aware of what is happening in this world, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who this week have faced just that, being put in prison as we, in our context, face the ostracism of a world that says, get on the page with us. But all that said, this narrative reflects the nature of our God as a God not only of firm justice, but in the eyes of many of excessive justice. Indeed, it seems a growing percentage of Christians do not welcome the picture of God that we find in this chapter. They'd really rather take it out. They wish it wasn't here. 
Do we want a God who sends a lion to devour a man for ignoring a simple divine command? One that's quite off-putting, really, to punch a guy. Do we want a God who wills the execution of a pagan king who's just doing what ancient kings did? Do we want a God who condemns to death a king and a large swath of his subjects for being nice to a conquered foe? I mean, isn't it true that Ahab really just loved his enemies as Jesus taught us? Well, for starters, we must rejoice. We must rejoice that God is not the God we always want. He is, rather, the God that we would want if we knew what we should want. Always. What we want God to be is ultimately irrelevant. But what we must learn and trust is that Scripture declares and displays that God is always just and that His justice is always a holy, sinless, utterly pure justice whether we approve it or not. Because we live in a world that justifies sin that adopts false standards of what is right and wrong, because we live in a world disloyal to Christ, because of sin resident in our own hearts, all of this working together, we easily cringe in the face of God's wrathful justice. And in some, on some level, we're dealing here with peanuts. It's a small stuff compared to the justice that God will bring down upon this world someday and every breathing soul in it. But we must not befriend the world in this regard and take on our world's definition of justice, which is utterly broken. The one true and living God is a just judge and He will execute ultimate judgment against every human being. He will do so as a perfectly pure and righteous judge. This is what we've never seen. We see it breaking out in Scripture as God acts in ways such as we find here in this narrative, but we have never seen a world in which perfect justice is administered. That day is coming. And this reality hits us in one of two distinct ways. For those who are separated from Christ, for those who have not leaned upon and drawn from that substitute standing in their place, John 3.18 describes you as condemned already. What's happened to this man with the lion, what's going to happen to Israel, and all of this is just small stuff. We stand at birth in a condemned position and the justice of God will fall. Or, secondly, there are those who have come to embrace the righteousness that is a gift from God. A righteousness already that we already have because our judgment was fully suffered by Christ who stood in our place to pay the just punishment of our sin. 
that holy, righteous, and complete justice was served. Jesus stepping into our place to take it all so that we can be forgiven of past, present, and future sin all in one act. So in this world, we now stand together as a community of exiles who have a different sense of justice based on God's revealed will concerning what is right and wrong and His perfect justice. And let me say, we must understand that that sense of justice aligns with no political party. It is from another world. There is trickle-down, there are applications, there are connections. It is not hardwired to any political party. There is a God in heaven, and we must live our lives as if that were the case. As pilgrim defenders of God's justice, And may we recognize that when it comes to political issues, when it comes to the outworking of justice in our world, it's a complicated world. And how God's sense of right and wrong and sense of justice applies is not always easy. But we must keep all in order, recognizing that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, over every square inch, and that it is His justice alone that matters in the end. And more positively as we think on that, we are learning that it is God's perfect righteous justice based on His eternal law that will truly and absolutely bring every sin and every sinner to a just end. This is where we cling to Christ and His substitutionary atonement as our life raft through this rush of judgment waters. He will bring it all to it. It won't be a lion. It won't be an army. In that day, it will be eternal hellfire. For millennia, God has graciously extended opportunity for sinners to repent, such as Ahab is facing here. Time and again, God proving His power, proving the opportunity that Ahab has to turn and repent. All we see here is a grumpy king, mad at God. I want justice to go my way. But that day when God's justice falls finally will come. And that end must involve eternal separation from God and from all that is pure and right. There is no other answer. There is no other hope. Only the pure, white-hot justice of God assures us that sin will end. And God's final victory over evil is going to take no prisoners. God's final victory over Satan will end his treasonous rule forever. That justice will come. And until that day, may the Lord find us faithfully defending his justice, proclaiming the one 
who satisfied that justice for every sinner, who calls upon his name in repentant faith. As a banner over all of this sometimes strange story is this idea that we would hope in God. That we would put our hope and our confidence in the final judge. And I ask you in the face of this, put yourself, if you are not certain of your salvation, you're not certain of your relationship with Christ, put yourself in Ahab's place right now. Do you want to walk away from this picture of the final justice of God? Grumpy. Sullen. Not responsive. As we face that day, may we come to the only answer, the only rescue, and that is the one who stood in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. There is no other hope, for that is where we see the one final evidence of true justice. When we get on the right side of that, we will then see in all of eternity the final outcome of a pure world where the Lord of heaven and earth reigns forever in perfection. Lord, we long for that day and we see in the book of 1 Kings one failed king after another. And we look about our world, we look at those who give guidance to this nation and we thank you for them and we receive them knowing that you are a sovereign God and yet we also see how far short they fall, how godless our world. Lord, may we not be friends of this world, but may we be citizens of another home. And may we learn to understand what you have said is right and what you have said is wrong and may we be sensitive and obedient to the call that you have placed upon our lives. I pray that we would understand justice from ultimately the standpoint of who you are and how you administer that justice and help us in our failings and in our insecurities, in our blindness, in our confusion. I pray that we would never make alliance with this world and its sense of justice, but that we would know of the Christ who said before me, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Lord, we pray to that end for those who know not Christ and for those of us who do, we now continue to rejoice in the salvation that has been given to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.